Here's an interesting question for you. What if sales leaders, or for that matter, managers in general, operated more like birders? You know, people that like to watch birds. I should probably explain that very weird question. Last weekend was a great day for birding. Yes, I admit it, I love birds. Now, let me be clear. I'm no expert by any measure, but I know a few hundred species reasonably well. And for me, that's something to be proud of because bird identification is unbelievably complicated. How, you may ask, is that possible? Well, because not all birds are like the cardinal or the eastern jay or the black-capped chickadee, birds that anybody can recognize. But most birds aren't like that. For example, in most cases, the male and the female look very different. Juveniles look like completely different species than their parents. A first-year bird looks a lot different than a second-year bird. When a summer bird molts for winter, the result is a bird that couldn't possibly be the same bird that was hanging around during the summer. And I won't even mention what happens when you get interspecies marriages going on. So, yeah, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I can identify a lot of birds. It took a lot of work. Now, we have a cluster of crabapple trees in the front yard, and every few years they produce a crop of apples that never get much bigger than cherries for some reason. Well, this was one of those years. The trees were just heavy with fruit, and the birds absolutely loved it. I happened to look out the window last Saturday, and it was a field day. Robins, nuthatches, starlings, jays, cardinals, house finches, goldfinches, these gorgeous cedar waxwings, and a handful of what birders called LBJs, little brown jobs. They were all flying in and out of the trees in great big groups, grabbing mouthfuls of fruit and then hiding in the thick blue spruce tree on the other side of the driveway to enjoy the fruit before coming back for more. Well, I was watching all this go on through my big monstrous Nikon 500mm f4 lens, ticking off all the species that I recognized and snapping pictures. But then I saw a bird that I'd never seen before. It was beautiful, about the size of a large sparrow, lots of red and white and black, and there was a female as well who was sort of a golden green color. Well, I had no idea what this thing was. I looked in my field guide and I narrowed it down to what I thought was a white-winged crossbill. There were a couple of others that almost fit the description, but the crossbill just seemed like the most likely bird. So I sent pictures to a couple of friends of mine who are really good birders, far better than I am. I also sent a picture to Cornell's Laboratory of Ornithology, which is the premier bird research center in the country and probably the world, asking them all for help with the identification. Well, the responses were unanimous. White-winged crossbill. That was a life bird for me, meaning a bird that I had never seen before. Now, I felt pretty good. With a little help from my friends, I had identified a bird that isn't all that common. Well, the next day, there were nine of them in the tree. Well, I posted a report on eBird, which is the global citizen scientist site for bird sightings. I don't usually do that because I don't have the confidence yet to feel right about what I'm doing. But because of what I'd been told and what I'd seen, I felt pretty good about it. This was exciting. I had seen a group of birds that were unusual to see in Vermont, especially in such numbers. I was stoked. I was also wrong. Well, the next day, my report got flagged by eBird, basically questioning the number. I wasn't surprised. Like I said, I'm not an expert by any means, but the feedback from all the people that are experts gave me a boost of confidence. By the way, this is what makes eBirds so good. 
People monitor the posts, and if they see something that doesn't look right, they flag it to verify the sighting. They flag posts all the time, and by crowdsourcing the process, they guarantee that the accuracy of the database constantly gets better over time. Well, within a few days, I got an email from a guy named Ian Worley. Ian is an eBird volunteer here in Vermont who saw my post. Now, he could have suggested that I just leave my bird identification efforts to those who actually know what they're doing, but he didn't because that's not how most serious birders behave. Instead, he took a different approach. His message started out like this. Let's suppose you somehow got as far as white wing crossbill, red crossbill, and pine grosbeak, which are all pretty similar. Let's also suppose you have your photos, but the bills are too shaded to see. Notice that what he's saying here is, here's what we know. Notice the collective we. That's important. We're doing this together. Let's look at the two fine side-by-side photos that you sent in this email. Again, we're doing this together. Ian's coaching me. And by the way, he's telling me that the photographs I submitted are good. Start with the positive. Let me interrupt myself here for just a minute. My friend Paul McDonough-Smith at MIT Sloan has a great methodology for problem solving. Rather than try to solve a big, hairy, monolithic challenge in one go, he recommends a four-step process. First, you break the problem down into smaller, more manageable pieces. Second, look for patterns in those pieces. Third, prioritize by separating the valuable wheat from the discardable chaff. And finally, Establish a logical set of rules that govern the solving of the problem from its beginning to its end. It's a process that works every time, regardless of the scale of the challenge. Well, Ian, without realizing it, was using Paul's process. Step one, break the problem into smaller pieces. First of all, you sent me several pictures of different but similar birds. So the first question is, can we tell if they're the same bird or not? The most obvious difference is that one has a big yellow area on its rump. The other thing I note is a slightly rosy area on the belly of the bird on the left, and just a trace of the same yellowish color on the bird on the right. Other than that, they look pretty similar. Now, there's a yellow crown and nape with traces of yellow on the back, but the back is mostly gray. The yellow of the crown comes right down to the upper eyelid and the top of the bill. Below and behind the eye is a yellowish area connecting with the nape. There's a pronounced lower eyelid, which seems wider toward the bill. A faint dark line extends a short distance behind the eye. Gray dominates the underparts from the neck and throat to the undertail covert feathers. The shoulders are gray, as are the flanks. The flight feathers are black or dark gray with white edges, as are the tail feathers. The legs and feet are black. The upper mandible is rounded, and the lower mandible is the same size as the upper. The wings appear to have two white bars, with the upper bar being very short compared to the lower one. Notice how Ian carefully points out all the analyzable elements of what is clearly a very complicated challenge as he decomposes it, the second stage of Paul's process. He analyzes that bird from the tip of its beak to the tip of its tail, but he's not finished yet. The overall shape is very much like birds in coloring books, meaning that the proportions look just right for a small songbird. 
It's a bit plump, or maybe it looks like that because it's fluffed up for insulation in the cold. This guy clearly knows his stuff, but he doesn't beat me over the head with it. I'm far less experienced than he is, but rather than point out where I'm wrong, he shows me all the things to look at next time to maximize my chances of being right. He's not just saying, it's not this, it's this. He's showing me the process through coaching that I should follow. But I want to point out that if he didn't understand my task, if he wasn't already an experienced birder, he couldn't coach me the way he did. The wing feathers barely reach the top of the tail. The tail is kind of average in length. Once Ian's done with his analysis, he moves on to what my friend Paul calls raising the signal-to-noise ratio. In the world of telecommunications, the signal-to-noise ratio is exactly that. It's a comparison of the level of the signal that we want to hear to the level of the signal in the background, the noise that we don't want to hear. If the background noise is loud enough, it can overwhelm the actual signal, making it hard to understand. Think about trying to listen to somebody on a staticky telephone line or a video call where the other person's audio keeps dropping out or somebody's voice while trying to have a conversation at a loud concert. We've all had those experiences. Well, in the world of data transmission, this is what can happen when your connection is bad and the transmitter and the receiver have to work together to make sense of the errors that the noise creates. Or, if you want an example from current events, Alternate facts and so-called fake news, conspiracy theories and the like, are the noise that makes it hard to hear the truth of what's actually going on. A good signal-to-noise ratio means that the desired signal is significantly louder than the noise to the point that we can hear what needs to be heard and we can kind of ignore the stuff that isn't important. So Ian now goes into the exercise of raising the signal-to-noise ratio. Now that we have the features and the photos pretty well under control, we can go to a field guide or app and see if they correspond to one of the three suspected species. Let's start with the red crossbill. According to our field guide, the red crossbill has no wing bars, no white edges on its wing feathers, and very little gray. The birds are either nearly all yellowish or all reddish, and the legs are not shiny black. The wing feathers extend about halfway down the tail, the bill is much larger, and the mandibles are crossed at the tips. Overall, it has a complicated-looking face and bill. So even though it's hard to see the beaks of these birds because of the fruit they have in their beaks, it's pretty clear that these two photos of yours are not of a red crossbill. So we move on to the white wing crossbill. The white wing crossbill male is dominantly red, so we can rule it out. Juveniles and females have body streaking. The upper wing bar is much larger and more prominent. It has no prominent white edges on its flight feathers. Its bill is much larger with a deeply downward curved upper mandible. Overall, like the red crossbill, it has a complicated looking face and bill. Clearly, these two photos are not white wing crossbills. So that leaves the pine grosbeak. The adult female in your picture seems to fit well. And in fact, not only is the plumage right, but the crab apples all add up to one of the boreal species that are erupting this year. Soak them up, because it may be another five years before we see them again. Finally, Ian pulls together his four-part analysis by providing a set of rules that I should follow in the future 
to help me learn to make accurate identifications. When you look at a number of photos and drawings of adult females or males or juveniles, you'll see that there is a definite variation among different birds. What that points out is that usually it's a combination of characteristics that provides a positive ID and not just one feature of the bird you're observing or whose photo you're reviewing. That's what makes bird identification so infuriating and interesting. He ends his lesson with a great message. Looking at all the photos of the different birds you saw that day, there's a great counterpoint between the fabulous and garish starling and the serene, smooth, and elegant waxwing. The great god of feathers must look at that and sigh with satisfaction. What Ian did here was coach me so that I would learn what I need to know to be a better birder. But he didn't stop there. He showed me how to apply that knowledge to great effect. Look, he could have just sent me a short message saying, it's a pine grosbeak, but he didn't. That wouldn't have helped me develop my skill. Instead, he took the time to teach me the skills and show me the techniques required to be better at the job of bird identification. Wouldn't it be nice if more managers and leaders operated that way? It's the key lesson of that ages-old saying, take care of your people, teach them, develop them, and they'll take care of you. And the results you're looking for will certainly follow. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.